Members of the Biden administration will be in Mexico today looking to reduce the number of migrants crossing the U.S. border. It's Wednesday, December 27th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, Israel says it's stepped up its offensive in Gaza as negotiators hope new UN resolutions can deliver aid faster. I think we did the right thing in creating an immediate scale-up of humanitarian aid to help save lives. Also this hour, an advisor to jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny say he's in a penal colony as part of what they call an intimidation tactic by President Vladimir Putin. Putin loves all these kind of symbolic gestures that demonstrate that he is the boss. He calls the shots. Plus, the growing interest in urban foraging. Clouds today. Highs should be around 50. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Israeli military says it's expanding its ground operations in central Gaza. It's now moving into overcrowded urban refugee camps. Tens of thousands of Palestinian civilians have moved to southern Gaza. Sean Casey is with the World Health Organization. He says thousands of Palestinians are camped around a medical facility in the southern city of Rafah. There's a, a camp of uh, thousands of people who have been settled here, who have resettled here um, because they've lost their homes or they've fled violence. A senior official with Israel's military says now that the war in Gaza will continue for many more months. He says the Israeli military will use different methods to maintain its achievements for a long time. Senior White House officials are traveling to Mexico today to talk about immigration enforcement. U.S. agents have encountered about 2.5 million migrants at the southern border this year. NPR's Jasmine Karst has more. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorgas, and White House Homeland Security Advisor Elizabeth Sherwood Randall are scheduled to meet with Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador. On the agenda, discussing how Mexico can secure its own southern border with Guatemala, as well as make it more difficult for migrants to move up through Mexico and to the U.S. President López Obrador has said he's willing to work with the U.S., but has also stated he wants the Biden administration to ease sanctions on the governments of Cuba and Venezuela. He argues that those sanctions are contributing to the surge in immigration and that deterrence alone will not be effective. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. The National Weather Service says the major winter storm that has thrashed the central U.S. is now weakening. However, there are still blizzard warnings posted for eastern Colorado. A survey shows that home prices in the United States rose to their highest level this year during October. NPR's Dara Kerr reports the biggest gains were in Detroit, San Diego, and New York City. This year showed a strong home pricing market across the country. That's according to the S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Index released this week. Home prices rose an average of 4.8% nationally in October. That's compared to the same time period last year and a jump from the 4% annual increase seen the month before. The strong home prices come even as mortgage interest rates remain stubbornly elevated. Eight major metro markets reported all-time home price highs, including Miami, Atlanta, Chicago, Boston, and Detroit. Detroit showed the largest gains, growing more than 8% in the 2023 high point month of October. Dara Kerr, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
Federal prosecutors have asked a judge to deny New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez's request to delay his trial on corruption charges. The New Jersey Democrat is accused of taking bribes in return for his influence in foreign affairs. He has denied the charges. His trial is set for May. But Menendez's lawyers say the case is complex and they need more time to prepare. Wildland firefighting is a heavily male-dominated field. The Mountain West News Bureau's Murphy Woodhouse has more on a crew that's trying to bring more women into the profession. The numbers are striking. In fiscal year 2021, 84% of federal firefighters were men. Lack of diversity has been identified as a part of the field's larger recruitment and retention problems. The South Carolina-based Table Rock Fire Crew, a collaboration between the U.S. Forest Service and the Student Conservation Association, is one effort to address the problem. Liz Skelly will be the acting captain for the crew's upcoming second season. She's heard encouraging things from women on the crew this year. Anybody who can do this work should be able to do this work. This year, the crew mostly did prescribed burn and prep work in the southeast. But next season, the roughly 10-member crew will be available nationally for suppression work when the West starts to burn. For NPR News, I'm Murphy Woodhouse. Government officials in the Las Vegas area say the city could set a record for the number of weddings performed there on New Year's Eve. Part of the draw is the date. December 31st, 2023, written in numerals, also looks like the repeating pattern. One, two, three, one, two, three. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. About 25 families are staying in a newly opened overnight shelter in Cambridge. The overflow shelter is located in a former courthouse on Cambridge Street. State officials say it has the capacity to give up to 70 homeless and migrant families a place to sleep until space becomes available in the larger shelter system. The shelter is expected to remain open through the winter. State data shows more than 7,500 families are now in the shelter system. About 50 families are using temporary emergency shelters. Mass Audubon will buy more than 1,300 acres of forest land in central Massachusetts to protect it from development. The land in Winchenden was on its way to being sold for solar farms, but as WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, Mass Audubon was able to match the developer's $6 million offer. The forest will connect to other protected land in Massachusetts and New Hampshire, creating a contiguous wildlife corridor. Large interconnected sites with diverse habitats can better support native animals like bears and bobcats. Mass Audubon President David O'Neill. One of the most important things for wildlife is that their habitats not be fragmented by development. And so it's just this critical wildlife corridor for the movement of a lot of animals that rely on large landscapes to survive. Mass Audubon will eventually give the land to the state to be conserved permanently. Massachusetts has a goal to protect 30% of state land by 2030. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. The group Hike Boston is hosting its Therapy Dog Holiday Stroll today. Therapy dogs will join hikers on a walk through the public garden in Boston Common. Steve Kraskowski is program manager of Hike Boston, and he says this is the first year that the group is hosting this type of hike. This is also an opportunity for us to learn more about therapy dogs 
um, and find out what it takes to becoming a therapy dog. And, you know, maybe it could be a good idea if someone is interested in training a therapy dog, they could learn from some of the resources that we have there. Chris Kasky says well-behaved, leashed dogs are also allowed on the hike. It's eight minutes past seven. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, supporting local charities during the Share the Love event. Learn more at MetroWestSubaru.com. The Bruins are in Buffalo tonight to play the Sabres, and looks like rain in our forecast today with temperatures in the upper 40s. Rain tonight should start tonight. Temperatures will stay in the 40s and more rain tomorrow with highs around 50 degrees. It's 43 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Leila Fadil. The war between Israel and Hamas is aggravating an already pretty bad relationship between the U.S. and Iran. Yesterday, President Biden ordered retaliatory airstrikes against Iranian-backed militants. Just hours after the militia, Kata'ab Hezbollah claimed responsibility for a drone attack that wounded three U.S. service members in Iraq. Iranian-backed militias have carried out more than 100 similar attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria since the start of the war in Gaza. And to discuss what's at stake here, I'm joined now by Paul Salem. He's president and CEO of the Middle East Institute. Paul, good morning. Good morning, Leila. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So, Paul, let's start with what Iran wants out of this moment. Uh, Well, uh, when the uh, uh, Israel-Hamas war broke out in October 7 and afterwards, uh, Iran vowed that it would uh, up the ante and raise the pressure from all of its Uh, sort of battlefields in the region. That includes proxies in Lebanon, Yemen, Syria, and Iraq. Uh, It vowed to increase pressure on Israel as well as uh, increase pressure on the U.S., which uh, is backing this current war. So that's the overall context. And the pressure, the overall goal of, of, of increasing that pressure is what? I mean, does the U.S. or Iran really want this to become a regional war? No, I think uh, both sides do not want it to escalate into a major conflict, but there are a number of things that I think uh, Iran and its proxies uh, want to do. One, certainly they, uh, in their attacks on Israel at least, they want to uh, keep the pressure on uh, the Israeli defense forces, distract them. Uh, Particularly, you see the uh, back and forth between Hezbollah and Lebanon Mm -hmm. and the IDF in Israel that keeps part of Israeli forces pinned down in northern Israel. Uh, But Iran also wants to raise the pressure on the U.S. Uh, Part of Iran's long-term strategy is to make life miserable for U.S. forces in the region to eventually uh, convince U.S. presidents to withdraw more forces uh, from, from the region. On that, I mean, there's a lot of anger in the Arab world right now over the ballooning death toll in Gaza where people are also starving. And so the actions of Iran's proxies, Hezbollah, the Houthis, are actually popular among many Arabs because they're seen as, quote unquote, resistance against Israel and its U.S. backers. Does this moment empower Iran and its proxies among Arab citizens and weaken Arab leaders seen as too cozy with Washington? Yes, to some degree it does. As you said, uh, uh, the you know the large uh, counterattack of Israel on Gaza uh, has garnered a lot of anger and sympathy for Palestinians in the region in general. 
uh, definitely Iran and its proxies want to benefit from that shift in uh, public opinion. Uh, but it's also the case that uh, Iran is trying to recoup some PR points, given that, in effect, they have not stepped in in a major way to stand with Hamas, uh, like they did when President Assad in Syria was under attack. They, they effectively joined that conflict mm. uh, to save their ally there. So given that they really haven't done what Hamas wanted them to do and what mu- what many Palestinians want them to do, this is a fallback PR action. Now, you you say that Iran and the U.S. really don't want this to become a larger regional war. But how great is the danger that this spirals into that anyways? Well, I think uh, both sides have long experience with this uh, type of, uh, let's call it limited escalation. This is not new to the post-October 7 period. It's been going on effectively for years. Of course, uh, the risk is always there, particularly if, you know, any U.S. Uh, you know, uh, location is, is attacked with larger losses than we saw. Uh, but I do think President Biden and this administration are not unpredictable, let's call it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hence, uh, I don't think either side will, you know, by mistake, stumble into a major escalation. They they have long experience in this. Now, the UN has been warning that Iran is rapidly building up stockpiles of enriched uranium. Are Israeli and U.S. actions giving Iran additional incentives to speed up its nuclear development programs? How much of this is about the Israel-Hamas war? Well, I mean, from the Iranian point of view, they've built up a very effective a set of proxy forces. Uh, The attacks of Hamas on October 7, I think, prove for the Iranians their model of asymmetric warfare. In effect, Israel could not effectively defend against that Hamas attack. Uh, Iran, uh, you know, it's noteworthy that Iran did not, uh, let's call it, deploy Hezbollah on the northern front in a major way. So I think Iran feels that strategically, Uh, Israel is extremely vulnerable while they are not under attack or vulnerable. So I think they feel uh, fairly satisfied. Uh, They already have a lot of incentives uh, to, you know, consider about their nuclear Mm -hmm. program. I don't think this changes the calculus dramatically. Paul Salem is the president and CEO of the Middle East Institute. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. Thank you for having me. Associates of the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny lost track of him for nearly three weeks before he resurfaced on Christmas Day. Navalny had been imprisoned just a few hours outside of Moscow, but he was moved to a penal colony above the Arctic Circle. We reached Vladimir Milov, an opposition politician and economic advisor to Navalny. I asked Milov how they managed to find him. Well, that was a long and tedious process. His legal team actually were sending formal inquiries. I now understand that they did so uh, regarding over 600 of the Russian different detention facilities across the country. So they received some formal replies. And uh, actually, at some point, they were able to locate him in this remote uh, panel colony uh, in the Arctic. Uh, So uh, as a matter of fact, there are very few detention centers of that sort. 
So they were really uh, suspecting that he might be somewhere there, and they located him. Yeah, and we now have word also on some of his social media accounts, a sort of letter description of what his situation has been like these past few weeks. Yes, he was visited by an attorney, as a matter of fact, in this uh, new penal colony, and uh, the attorney conveyed a personal New Year's message from Navalny, which was, he's more or less all right Mm -hmm. and in good spirits. He did seem to have, I think, a bit of humor in that uh, letter, at least the translation of it that I had seen. That's the only way to deal with all this harshness. You know, he spent many long terms in detention all over the past decade, so he's actually quite uh, familiar with all the Mm -hmm. circumstances. You know, Navalny disappeared around the same time that Russian President Vladimir Putin announced that he will be seeking a fifth term. He's planning to run for re-election next year. How do you make sense of that timing? It's no coincidence to me because uh, Putin loves all these kind of symbolic gestures that demonstrate that he is the boss. He calls the shots. And uh, that's a pretty clear signal that uh, he would want to enter a new presidential term through intimidation, repression, more pressure on the uh, society. And uh, so this is how Putin is supposed to run his presidential campaign and enter the new term. Because Putin sees Navalny uh, as a potential threat? Putin is well aware that the Russian society, in, in a large part of it, is strongly against him. Uh, there is definitely no love between Putin and the Russian society. People are just scared, very much afraid about their own lives and and, uh, security and so on. This is why they don't speak up. There's this constant fear in the Kremlin that at some point uh, people will say enough is enough and they will begin to speak up. It seems essentially certain that Putin will win a fifth term during the elections coming up this March. And I look at someone like you, you're living in political exile in Lithuania. Alexei Navalny is in prison, right, being sent to this new penal camp in the Arctic Circle. Um, you all have have sacrificed so much, and yet it seems certain that Putin will win re-election. So help us understand what you all are trying to do with the opposition movement. We try to first focus on talking to the Russian people and broadcasting because uh, political activity is effectively prohibited uh, on the ground in my country. But what we can do is we can maintain the spirit of resistance. Uh, We can keep the people informed. So we try to maintain connection. Uh, We try to talk to people and prepare them for better days for the situation when uh, they will be able to come and speak up against the government. I compared this with the last totally controlled uh, Soviet elections of the 1984. It was like on surface, total calm, 99.95% for the Communist Party. But just a couple of years down the road, we were already standing on the streets with uh, slogans down with the communists. So if you recall Russian history, things can unravel pretty fast. So we try to maintain the degree of this underground resistance. That's Vladimir Milov. He's the economic advisor to Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. He joined us via Skype. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Tis the season to send a text. Text me Merry Christmas. Let me know you care. Yep, turns out Christmas is the busiest day of the year for texting. 
We've had a couple of days now to reflect and maybe regret. Maybe you texted an old flame. It's pretty common. So common there's a term for it, Marleying. <laughs> the term is inspired by Jacob Marley, Scrooge's former business partner from A Christmas Carol. You know, because he showed up after a long period of time of no contact. So a survey by the dating site eHarmony in the UK finds close to one in ten singles has been Marleyed, while nearly as many admit they've done some Marleying. Texting without a response may be the real Christmas ghost. But hey, text messages have been a part of the holiday spirit for a while now. Back in December of 1992, Neil Papworth sent the world's first text message, and it said, Merry Christmas. This is NPR News. Thanks for being with us here on WBUR this morning. Coming up on Morning Edition, we'll hear from a U.N. official about negotiating two resolutions on Israel's war against Hamas and trying to find common ground with the U.S. It's 20 minutes past 7. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Have an artful holiday season with acclaimed exhibitions, a family film festival, art making, and more. Plan your visit at ICABoston.org. I'm Robin Young. While Michigan made ballot drop boxes mandatory in 2023, North Carolina banned them. We'll look at changes in voting laws. For some Americans, voting is going to be more accessible in 2024 than it has ever been before. While other Americans are going to experience a lot of new barriers to the ballot box. Next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Clouds in our forecast today with temperatures in the upper 40s. Rain tonight with temperatures staying around 40 degrees and more rain in the forecast tomorrow. Highs around 50. It's 43 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education and the arts towards a fair, more just and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. Most of us think of public parks as a place to play, relax, or work out. But urban forager Douglas Kent sees food. This whole area is just covered in just goodness. Um, these are all the thistles. You can see them all blooming here. The root makes a coffee substitute. The flowers are edible. The seeds are edible. Kent teaches ecological land management at Cal Poly Pomona and is the author of Foraging Southern California. He recently took me on a tour of Ken Malloy Harbor Regional Park near the Port of Los Angeles. We've been walking 10 minutes and you showed us things for cordage. You've showed us things for teas. You've showed us things for medicine to heal our wounds. 
essentially, this is a supermarket oh. that we're walking through, right? Yeah, it, actually right here. This is a Brazilian pepper. He points out a tall bush, heavy with clusters of what look like small pink berries. I'll taste one, sure. Oh, yeah. It's, it's really slight. So this was a staple of um, French cooking for years. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was really nice. That's a really nice feeling. Doug showed us that nearly every plant we saw in this park could be foraged, and these plants grow all over California year-round. You forage greens late winter, early spring, seeds from late spring to early summer, roots late summer to early fall, and then bark and stuff like that from uh, late fall to early winter. And if you think this kind of abundance only exists in California with its mild winters, you'd be wrong. From Columbus, Ohio, Alexis Nicole Nelson explains how to find things we may not think of as food and then make them delicious. I think a lot of people don't realize how biodiverse their neighborhoods are, like heading into the winter months. I could walk my block and probably find at least 10 different edible plants. Nelson is a James Beard award-winning chef who has amassed millions of followers using the handle Black Forager on Instagram and TikTok. The volume ratio is one of dust to like two and a half of water. Mixy, mixy. May not look like much now, but it'll thicken up as we cook. She credits her parents for her deep knowledge of plants. Kind of like kids who are raised learning a different language. I was raised recognizing leaf patterns and branching patterns and buds and, you know, the time of year that certain plants are doing certain things. As a person who has, like, struggled uh, with my own mental health from a pretty young age, it's really been a lighthouse in what is often the very misty seas that is the inside of my brain. Alexis, I noticed in some of your videos that you actually thank the plant or the tree before harvesting. Can you talk about why you do that? I think we've kind of become really disconnected from remembering that the trees, the plants, shrubs, animals are like also living things. Yes, they're perceiving the world around them and interacting with it in different ways than we do, but their lives also matter. It helps you build a, re a better relationship with the world around you, and it helps you really savor the importance of what it is you're gathering. Why do you think more people have become interested in foraging lately? In terms of very recent things, I think, you know, that very casual global pandemic that affected every single one of us left a lot of people wanting activities that they could do outside with their families or by themselves. And foraging is a great use of outdoor time. If you find a food that you end up really liking, you get a little like dopamine payoff every single time mm -hmm. that you do it. And we are in times in which you have to get your dopamine where you can get it. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you end every video with a catchphrase, <laughs> don't die. Tell us why. Because dying is bad, eh? It's generally yes. frowned upon in most I think we societies. can all agree that that is true. <laughs> and, you know, foraging, everyone wants the idyllic, the cottage core, the frolicking with your basket full of greens and flowers and berries. 
But you do have to remember that safety is the most important. I originally ended a video that way for the first time as a joke because my partner is an attorney. (laughs) And he was like, oh, 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 no, you got to remind people to not die. Is foraging different for a Black forager? Yeah, I would absolutely say that it is. We have a pretty fraught history of our relationship with outdoor spaces and with the food knowledge of those spaces, you know, during the times when people were enslaved. Foraging was like a really great way to round out a meal. There was a whole lot of information and knowledge transfer between indigenous populations and black populations trying to help each other kind of better survive. People still sometimes get uncomfortable when they see a black person doing an activity that they cannot immediately identify. And if you've seen my videos, I'm usually in like floofy dresses and a lot of makeup or flower crowns because I would always rather have someone come up to me and ask what they're doing before like calling the police. So I do think that foraging as a Black person is a little different in the United States. I do think that it's important to be getting a lot of different perspectives to remind people that at some point in time, every single one of us is here today because one of our ancestors, however far back you have to go, foraged. And I just, I love getting to honor that with foraging and getting to share that with other people. That's forager, cook, social media extrovert, Alexis Nicole Nelson. Alexis, thank you. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are just ahead. And in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the numbers on holiday spending were up over last year. Another positive sign for the economy. It's 730. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Migration and border security will be the focus today when Secretary of State Antony Blinken meets with Mexico's President Andres Manuel López Obrador. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas will also take part in the talks in Mexico City. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports. The two sides will discuss ways to get a handle on a record number of migrants trying to cross into the United States. The talks are expected to include ways to better enforce security at the border and opening legal pathways for migrants. Immigration reform is also the focus of ongoing negotiations on Capitol Hill. Lawmakers are working toward a bipartisan agreement that would address the longstanding issue. 
Republicans in Congress want changes to border and immigration policies before approving the president's request for billions of dollars in additional USA to Ukraine and Israel. The war between Israel and Hamas has prompted militias supported by Iran to attack Israeli and U.S. forces in the Middle East. Yesterday, the U.S. launched airstrikes against Iranian-backed militias in Iraq, hours after an attack left three American service members wounded. Here's NPR's Peter Kenyon. Each attack brings pressure for a response, and the risk of escalation is very real. Diplomats are looking for some means of preventing that. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. A power plant in Cambridge is trying out a new way to cut back on fossil fuels. For decades, the plant used natural gas to generate steam to heat a few hundred buildings. As WBUR's Paula Mora reports, now the plant is installing an electric boiler to reduce emissions. Boston and Cambridge are required to reduce carbon emissions from buildings to net zero by 2050. Heating represents nearly half of large buildings' emissions, and over 200 of those buildings rely on steam for heat. One energy company that produces steam is making it cleaner by installing an electric boiler. Michael Gewelber is a professor at Boston University. By getting the steam generation facilities to adopt these sort of solutions, we're significantly reducing Boston and Cambridge's emissions. Givalber says electric steam will be much more expensive, though. For 9.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. Supporters of a so-called baby bonds program hope it gains traction in the new year. It will give a small investment, similar to a savings bond, to children born into low-income families. They would get it plus interest when they turn 18. A similar program is in effect in Connecticut. The state treasurer says he supports the idea but tells the Boston Globe the biggest hurdle right now is how to fund it. Some residents, business owners, and elected officials in Everett say they want more input on a potential new soccer stadium. Everett's mayor and the New England Revolution have been pushing for a new stadium to be built near the Encore Casino, but some residents tell the Boston Globe they're concerned about how a stadium might affect traffic and housing prices, and they want more of a say. Everett's mayor is promising public hearings if the plan wins state approval to move forward. The time is 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners. And by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Bruins will try to snap a four-game losing streak tonight. They'll visit the Buffalo Sabres and looks like cloudy forecast today with temperatures in the 40s and rain starting tonight. Temperatures staying in the 40s, more rain tomorrow with highs around 50 degrees. It's 43 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel. And I'm Asma Khalid. The United Nations Security Council resolution on Gaza last week did not call for an immediate ceasefire, as many nations around the world had hoped it would. Instead, the compromise measure focuses on the humanitarian crisis, demanding faster aid deliveries into Gaza. The U.S. and Russia abstained from the vote. One country that played a major role in shaping the measure is the United Arab Emirates. The UAE is serving a rotation on the Security Council that ends this week. And I spoke with the country's ambassador to the UN, Lana Nuseiba, who told me how the resolution came together. It's clear from the very beginning of this conflict that a number of countries uh, called for and felt, including the United Arab Emirates, that the way forward was a a humanitarian ceasefire. We were not able to uh, move in that direction because of the politics and the dynamics of the Security Councils and various member states and their equities in this conflict. This is really a code red for humanity, what is happening on the ground in Gaza. So the UAE is, uh, of course, the Arab representative on the council and fully represents uh, the Arab perspective. We built up the uh, Security Council's understanding of the file by taking them as the UAE to the Rafah border. We met victims, including children who'd endured and survived this hell that had been unleashed on Gaza following the 7th of October attacks on Israel, which were also uh, unacceptable. Mm-hmm. We saw thousands of trucks trying and failing to enter through this choke point at the Rafah border. And now you've got nearly one million people crammed into an area at the Rafah border Um, where before only a few hundred thousand had lived. So 10% of what is necessary to sustain the population is going in through that choke point and half the people uh, of Gaza are now starving. And of course, there is a real possibility of regional spillover, and I think we're seeing that. Ambassador, there was a lot of negotiations to get this resolution through. It was not the first resolution that you all initially put forth. Can you help us understand what some of the, the provisions were that you ultimately had to remove to get a consensus behind this? There are countries who wield a veto on the Security Council Uh, who have very specific equities on this file. Gaza has essentially been under siege, under blockade for 16 years, and this is an attempt through this resolution to end that siege. We work very closely with the U.S. mission. They did not want to veto a humanitarian-focused resolution, and we work very hard to keep the focus on saving lives, having impact on the ground. Of course, it did not go as far as the majority of council members would have liked it to go. To be clear to to listeners, Russia, in addition to the United States, were the two countries that abstained from supporting this resolution, but did not veto it. Well, correct. If you have two P5 members abstaining on a resolution, I think a lot of countries had to make compromises in order for it to be passed. So it was difficult negotiations, but I think the adoption is going to help more people in the immediate term um, than political grandstanding that that is vetoed uh, and that does nothing to move us closer to trying to save lives. Ambassador, my colleague Scott Detrow interviewed the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, on Friday after the resolution went through, and he asked her specifically why the United States abstained, and this is what she said. It was the lack of condemnation of Hamas that was specifically a concern for the United States. Did the United States convey that specific concern to you all as well? There was a earlier resolution in the course of this conflict 
that was vetoed, that did condemn Hamas, that many council members voted in favor of, and that was put forward by the Brazilians at the time. We're talking about 20,000 dead that we know of, 8,000 children that we know of, let alone those bodies that will be found under the rubble at a future date. Any future resolution would also have to take note and condemn what has been a brutal military campaign. Hmm. Why not include that condemnation if you could potentially win over more support? Given the current geopolitical environment in terms of getting a resolution adopted, I think we did the right thing in creating an immediate scale-up of humanitarian aid to help save lives. The politics takes longer, and it involves a much wider uh, a much wider array of issues, including the occupation uh, of the Palestinian territory, including their uh, rightful request for self-determination and statehood, including that injustice. That's the United Arab Emirates Ambassador to the United Nations, Lana Nuseba. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Asma, for having me. Shoppers aren't holding back this holiday season. Retail spending isn't as rip-roaring as it was last year, but it's still up over the holidays. Early data shows that consumers remain confident, if not giddy, in a good sign for the broader economy. NPR's Becky Sullivan reports. During the pandemic, shoppers flush with cash from stimulus checks spent more than ever, spending big on outdoor equipment and furniture for home offices, all while inflation drove prices higher and higher. So year to year, holiday spending grew by 8 or even 12 percent. This year, it's back to a very normal 3.1 percent, according to data released Tuesday by MasterCard. And that means it was a good year for shoppers and retailers alike, says Bert Flickinger. Consumers uh, spent and they spent on practical items, gift cards, uh, food, uh, clothing and shoes and less on electronics this year. Flickinger is managing director at the Strategic Resource Group, a business consulting firm. Consumers didn't go wild spending on expensive things like fancy furniture or jewelry or electronics, he says. Instead, people focused their spending on smaller-scale stuff, like new clothes and eating out. Sales at restaurants this holiday season were up by nearly 8% over last year. People had really been well-supplied and uh, not buying big-ticket items, uh, but consumables, whether it's uh, edibles or wearables, uh, really, really led. So it's a practical Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's season. That shoppers have money to spend during the holidays is evidence that the economy is working right now, said Jack Kleinhens, chief economist at the National Retail Federation. Consumers are spending a decent clip and they've been remarkably resilient this year and surprisingly so because of the resilience that we've seen in the labor market. Unemployment has stayed low and employers keep hiring. Meanwhile, inflation is slowing down. Prices are only up 2.6 percent over this time last year, which isn't too far from the Fed's target rate of 2 percent. That said, there are some yellow flags in this economy. There's the record amount of credit card debt, more than $1 trillion, and millions of people have recently had to start making federal student loan payments again after a long pause during the pandemic. Still, Kleinhez says he's optimistic. For retailers, 2023 isn't done just yet. The week after Christmas is one of the busiest weeks of the year. People are have their gift cards. They're making exchanges. Um, they're looking for sales. And of course, there's returns that go along with it. All signs point to a solid finish for the year, he says. Becky Sullivan, NPR News.
This is NPR News. This is WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on Morning Edition, NPR's Linda Holmes has her annual 50 Wonderful Things from Pop Culture this year. Her list includes the movie musical The Color Purple and the TV show Succession. It's 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. In business news, fewer than 5% of Boston-area homes for sale are considered affordable. That's according to a new analysis by Redfin. It defines affordability by measuring how many listings have a mortgage payment no more than 30% of the local median household income. Redfin says high mortgage rates and rising home prices are shutting more people out of home ownership in greater Boston. A A growing number of millennials in Massachusetts are integrating artificial intelligence into their financial planning. That's according to a new survey from Springfield-based Mass Mutual. AI builds individual portfolios by running user profiles through so-called robo-advisors. The tool uses algorithms to manage a user's assets, and Amanda Wallace with Mass Mutual says AI can help new investors get started, but she warns there are some shortcomings. Every AI solution that's developed by different financial institutions is trained differently on different model sets. There can be some inherent bias in some of these AI recommendations. So it's just user beware. I would strongly recommend you meet with a financial professional before you pull the trigger and you make some of those decisions. She also says AI tools can omit considering some individual circumstances, such as health issues or financial obligations to loved ones. Our forecast is calling for clouds today and temperatures in the upper 40s, rain tonight with temperatures staying in the 40s and rain tomorrow with highs around 50 degrees. 43 degrees right now in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We have a look back now at some of the NPR stories that won the internet in 2023. By that, we mean news stories that were most read online. NPR's Bill Chappell and Emily Alphen Johnson gathered these from NPR and its network of member stations. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi there. Emily, what do you got? Our member stations published a bunch of wild stories this year that captured national attention. Member station KBBI in Alaska shared the story of 29-year-old Kelsey Haas. She was ice skating in Homer and fell through some particularly thin ice, but managed to save herself because she was carrying a dead snowshoe hare. What? Which, yeah, 
which she then slapped onto the ice and used as a handle to sort of shimmy herself back to safety. Amazing. And then our member station, KPCW in Park City, Utah, brought us the story of a widowed mother who wrote a children's book about how to help her kids deal with grief. It was inspired by her husband's death. And then shortly after, we learned she's been charged with his murder. And it's okay, been a crazy I can see story. how that won the internet, but go on. But what actually topped the charts was one of my personal favorites from Maine Public's Keith Shortall about a passive house in Hope, Maine that can stay a lovely 70 degrees inside, even when it is absolutely frigid outside, all without a furnace. Okay, those are some stories from our member stations. Bill, what topped the charts at NPR.org this year? This list isn't always the biggest news event of the year. Some of the things that were mega stories we had live blogs for, like the Israel-Hamas war, Trump's indictments, a lot of news took place. But millions of people read these other stories on our site. One that really caught people's attention was when a former intelligence official went to Congress and said that the U.S. has recovered non-human biologics, in quotes, from UFO crash sites. And there were gasps from people watching this hearing with Representative Nancy Mays of South Carolina. You've stated that the government is in possession of potentially non-human spacecraft. Based on your experience and extensive conversations with experts, do you believe our government has made contact with intelligent extraterrestrials? Something I can't discuss in public setting. A lot of this sounds like it's straight out of sci-fi, like the X-Files. But, you know, there's a lot of stigma around reporting unusual stuff that people see in the air and water. If a pilot's worried about losing his license, he might keep quiet about seeing something odd. So they want to see a better system for reporting and tracking these kind of unexplained phenomena. Okay, I can see how UFOs would fly on the Internet, so to speak. What else you got? Well, consumers sued the Sazerac company for fraud after they noticed that many bottles of Fireball Cinnamon are different from Fireball Cinnamon whiskey bottles. So these little mini bottles you might have seen are sold for 99 cents. Their label says that they're a malt beverage with natural whiskey. And then there's a line break and it says, and other flavors. So okay. <laughs> it turns out these bottles contain a blend of malt beverage and wine with whiskey flavor, but not actual whiskey. Okay. So a lot of people, I think, were interested in this story because these little bottles are out in places that don't sell liquor. And you're wondering, like, how are they selling these for 99 cents? You know, why do I have to slap my kid's hand away from this while I'm at the grocery checkout? And, you know, the answer is they don't actually have liquor in them. Okay, I'll drink to that. Bill and Emily, thanks to both of you. Sure thing. Great to talk with you, Steve. Thank you. That's Bill Chappell and Emily Alphen-Johnson with some of the most read stories of 2023. Head to NPR.org to check out the full list. This is NPR News. This is WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the latest on efforts from a bipartisan group of lawmakers that wants to end legacy preferences in college admissions. It's 10 minutes before 8. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. 
WBUR has been reporting for months on the family shelter system here in Massachusetts. It's bursting at the seams. During the course of our reporting, it's moved from a low simmer to a boil, and it shows no signs of relenting. I'm Gabriela Emanuel. This kind of in-depth reporting takes investment. Make a year-end contribution by December 31st at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. The Israeli military is telling residents of a refugee camp in central Gaza to leave as it expands its ground offensive in the area. Senior White House officials will be in Mexico today to discuss border enforcement in an effort to drive down illegal crossings. And new data show U.S. home prices hit record highs in October with the median price in Boston surpassing $900,000. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Cloudy skies today with temperatures in the upper 40s. Looks like rain tonight with lows staying in the 40s and more rain tomorrow. Highs near 50 degrees. It's 43 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Asma Khalid. Americans are more divided than ever over how to tackle the escalating fentanyl crisis. The drug is killing an unprecedented number of people in the United States. I'm joined this morning by three reporters to talk about this crisis and what might come next. Brian Mann is NPR's addiction correspondent. Martha Biebinger is a health reporter with WBUR in Boston. And Aneri Patani is a senior correspondent with KFF Health News. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Brian, let's start with you. The opioid epidemic has been raging for quite some time. Why is this moment so much deadlier? 2023 really was different. We're seeing more than 112,000 people dying every year in the United States. We used to think it was a catastrophe that 60 to 70,000 Americans were dying every year from drug overdoses. Now it's a lot worse. And the street supply of drugs keeps getting more toxic, not just with fentanyl, but also now we're seeing other deadly chemicals like methamphetamines and xylazine all mixed together in these drug cocktails. Louise Vincent is an activist helping people with addiction in North Carolina. We've had an entire community swept away. I can't even think of all the people that I know that have died. I mean, so many people are dead. My daughter died. Our mentors are dead. Hey, Asma, this is Aneri. I just wanted to chime in because I think what Luis just said there, what we heard from her, is really reflecting what we're seeing in the statistics, too. I mean, overdoses are now the leading cause of death for people in America ages 18 to 45. And they're also one of the leading things killing pregnant women and women who've just given birth. So this is just an incredibly devastating moment. And I think we're hearing that from people. And Brian, I've got a follow up question here. The overdose death rate has been incredibly high now for years. So why are we not seeing solutions? You know, the Biden administration says they are attacking this problem with a lot more money and policy ideas. But the bottom line, and and every drug policy expert I talk to agrees on this, the tools we've used in the past to fight drug epidemics just aren't working. Brian, this is Martha. I'm going to jump in on that with another frustration. And that's that even as the death rates are this high, we're seeing some mainstream medical providers who aren't really helping. There are medications and treatments for addiction. You might have heard of drugs like buprenorphine or methadone. 
but there's a lot of stigma and a lack of training. And so many doctors don't use them. They won't prescribe them to their patients or they, they just don't take people in addiction as patients. Hmm. Martha, sticking with you, you know, given that the tools that we've been talking about for dealing with addiction have not worked, people are turning to a strategy that's been used for years in other countries called harm reduction. Can you explain to us what that is? So harm reduction is about keeping people alive while they use drugs. And asthma, that might mean handing out naloxone and needles or pipes so that people don't share equipment and spread diseases. Some harm reductions will even monitor drug use to prevent a fatal overdose. But harm reduction is also an attitude shift, and this is a really important part. It's about treating people who use substances with respect and kindness, not shaming and blaming them. Here's one harm reduction worker, Renee, describing her work. The stuff is just the carrot that I dangle before the horse. I'm wanting to make a connection with you. So, Asma, that connection that Renee and others talk about is meant to help restore dignity and self-respect and be a path to recovery. Now, some of what Renee and others do to keep people alive, like supervising drug use, is illegal. So we're not using her full name and we have altered her voice. Harm reduction is widely accepted in Canada, also in Europe. It is still controversial, though, here in the United States. And the backlash against it does appear to be growing in some corners. And and why is that? So, Asma, in short, it's seen as enabling drug use. Opponents see giving someone a needle or showing compassion. They see that as condoning drug use or condoning bad behavior. And they argue that the focus should be on sending or forcing people into treatment if needed. Now, I want to be clear, harm reduction is no magic fix. Overdoses and deaths are still high in states with lots of these programs, including Massachusetts, where I live. So there's a tug of war between the punishing or tough love approach and the softer, more compassionate model of harm reduction that's happening daily. Aneri, I want to bring you into the conversation. You know, we have heard news that drug companies have agreed to pay more than $50 billion in compensation for their role in spurring the opioid crisis. Is that money helping? What is that money going towards? So it really differs depending on which state you look at. And honestly, it's too soon to tell if it's helping across the country. But you're seeing a lot of the same issues play out that Martha and Brian were just talking about. So some states, even despite urgency with people dying every day, some states haven't touched their settlement funds yet. Other places are looking at investing in naloxone or harm reduction techniques like Martha was talking about. And then you have places that are at the other end saying, we need to give this money to law enforcement. So they've bought patrol cars, roadside cameras, body scanners for their jails. The thing is, there's just not a lot of evidence that those sorts of investments will prevent overdoses or save lives. And a lot of families are upset. So Carrie Spears in Ohio is one of them. She lost her 23-year-old nephew, Tanner, to a fentanyl overdose two years ago. Her small town has spent most of its settlement cash on surveillance equipment and training for their officers and canines. And she's just not sure how that's going to save people like her nephew. Not that I don't support law enforcement or first responders, Mm -hmm. but what research did they look at that said, yeah, surveillance equipment and canine helps people get into recovery and sobriety. And what I'm hearing from my reporting is that just like in that town where Carrie lives, A lot of times decisions about the settlement money is not so much based on evidence, but on geography and politics of the place. Speaking of politics, I've got a final question for you all here. How is fentanyl, the fentanyl crisis, likely to play out as an issue in the 2024 election? 
Let me take that one, Asma. Public policy experts I talk to really worry that this is going to get ugly politically with a lot of politicians really weaponizing the fentanyl issue. There's a lot of disinformation out there about this topic and ideas that research suggests don't actually help save lives. A lot of promises are being made, for example, to stop fentanyl smuggling into the U.S., but no one, Democrats or Republicans, have plans that anybody thinks would actually do that. Real solutions to this crisis are likely going to be a lot more complex, involving things like reforming health care and expanding access to housing and mental health care. And, you know, trying to do that kind of work in 2024 in America's polarized political culture, everyone I'm talking to says it's going to be really tough, especially if these deaths keep rising. That is NPR's Brian Mann, along with WBUR's Martha Biebinger and KFF Health News' Aneri Patani. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Asma Khalid. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture. You can shop their organic, sustainable, curated furniture collections during their end-of-year event, happening now. More at circlefurniture.com. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israel says it's expanded its ground offensive in Gaza and the war will not end until it dismantles Hamas. It's Wednesday, December 27th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, a U.S. delegation is meeting with Mexico's president to try to stem a surge of migrants reaching the U.S. border. Also, a bipartisan group of lawmakers wants to end legacy preferences in college admissions. The admissions process is flawed and it's skewed, and I hope that it can be reformed to be fairer for all college applicants. Plus, a local energy company is trying to help Boston and Cambridge reduce carbon emissions by providing steam heat without using fossil fuels. The boiler would be zero emissions, right, because we're going to take in renewable power, right, wind power, solar power. Clouds today, highs in the upper 40s. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. In Gaza, the main telecom provider says phone and internet service are down once again. This comes as the Israeli military and Hamas militants continue to battle. NPR's Jason DeRose reports from Tel Aviv. On Tuesday night, the company Paltel announced that damaged infrastructure means communication services have been blacked out. Comms have been going on and off in Gaza throughout the conflict. Humanitarian agencies and first responders say these outages jeopardize the already difficult and constrained work of providing life-saving assistance in Gaza. Without internet or telephone, aid workers don't know where the areas of highest need are or if it's reasonably safe to transport supplies to those places. Additionally, a lack of internet that means the online maps Israel publishes telling Gazans where to evacuate because of impending bombings are essentially useless. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Tel Aviv. One of the biggest shipping companies in the world, Hapag Lloyd, says it won't let its ships sail through the Red Sea. It considers the situation too dangerous. Houthi rebels in Yemen are firing on commercial ships in the Red Sea they think are sailing to Israel. 
The director general of the Institute of Export and International Trade, Marco Forgioni, says it is vital for safe shipping to resume in the Red Sea. About 12% of global trade transits through Suez Canal. That includes about 10% of the world's oil and 30% of the world's container shipping. So it's a, it's a vital route. So we are hoping that we can begin to get back to normal trading through the Red Sea. He spoke to the BBC. The U.S. and several other nations are stepping up military patrols in the Red Sea to protect international shipping. Ever since the state of Texas adopted a full ban on abortion, a San Antonio abortion provider has moved his entire practice to neighboring New Mexico. He says that 85 percent of his patients are from Texas. Caleb Padilla of Texas Public Radio reports that Dr. Alan Braid's patients are traveling to receive reproductive care. The 78-year-old physician made news in 2022 when he challenged a Texas fetal heartbeat law and won. The law outlawed abortion as early as six weeks. Soon after, he moved 700 miles away to New Mexico, where he continues to treat Texans. This year, some counties in Texas passed abortion ordinances that would punish those who help pregnant women travel on their way to receive out-of-state abortion care. Braid said this affects his and other clinics. They're having higher no-show rates because people are afraid to drive through Lubbock, Amarillo. Braid said he's concerned that a national ban could go into effect in the future and make conditions even worse for patients. I'm Kayla Padilla in Albuquerque, New Mexico. On Wall Street, in futures trading, Dow futures are lower. This is NPR. A new survey says holiday shoppers in the U.S. spent more this year, NPR's Becky Sullivan explains. From November 1st through Christmas Eve, consumers spent 3.1 percent more than they did last year, according to new data from MasterCard. It's a good sign, economists say, evidence that people still have jobs and money to spend. They're spending on more practical things this year, focusing on clothes and dining out, rather than making big-ticket purchases like furniture, electronics, or jewelry. There are still some yellow flags in this economy. Credit card debt is at a record high, and millions of Americans had to start paying off their federal student loans again this fall. Overall, though, inflation has slowed to 2.6 percent over this time last year, and dropping prices for gas and heating have put more money back in people's pockets. Becky Sullivan, NPR News. Online retailer Zulily says it is closing down for good. In an online statement, the company blamed a challenging business environment and, quote, financial instability. Police in Indiana say two good Samaritans have rescued a man who was trapped in his crashed pickup truck off Interstate 94. He had been trapped for six days. Indiana State Police Sergeant Glenn Fifield says the two men were searching for a good fishing spot when they discovered the motorist stuck behind the wheel of a wrecked truck. And they had a very difficult time getting down uh, into the creek area um, with their equipment to uh, basically uh, to cut him out and remove him. Police say the motorist was airlifted to a hospital and he has severe injuries. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The backlog of patients waiting to be discharged from Massachusetts hospitals is expected to increase this winter. That's in part because of more respiratory illnesses, including COVID and RSV. State health data show about 750 people were stuck in hospitals while awaiting transfer to other treatment centers last month. 
The Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association says those delays are mostly caused by barriers from insurance companies and staffing constraints. Researchers at UMass Amherst say they found that exposure to a common chemical can affect how quickly a person gets pregnant, but not necessarily whether the pregnancy continues. Health Sciences professor Carrie Noble says the chemical group known as phthalates are everywhere. So you can find them in things like shower curtains or like vinyl flooring, but also in food packaging as well. So kind of ingestion can be an important source. Researchers found the chemicals led to increased inflammation and changes in hormonal patterns, which can affect ovulation. The study found a slight association between phthalates in a woman's body and how likely she is to get pregnant during any given cycle, which can be significant for couples with fertility problems. Some European countries limit the use of phthalates in household products, but the U.S. does not. It's been 35 years since the action film Die Hard hit the big screens. It stars Bruce Willis as a foul-mouthed cop. Now, a one-man show is coming to Boston that celebrates and parodies the iconic film. More from WBUR's Ariel Gray. Yippee-ki-yay at the Huntington follows off-duty cop John McClane on his quest to save hostages from a group of gunmen. Richard Marsh, who wrote the show, says it's an opportunity to visit a beloved classic with an added twist. It's just a very different narrative and emotional experience to watching a movie. And part of the fun of it is the audience are kind of complicit in the, the telling of these big moments in kind of creative and kind of comic ways. Daryl Bailey plays McLean and all of the other characters in the play. The show runs at the Huntington Theater till December 31st. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Arielle Gray. The time is eight minutes past eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, supporting local charities during the Share the Love event. Learn more at MetroWestSubaru.com. The Bruins are back on the ice tonight when they visit the Buffalo Sabres, and it's going to be cloudy today with temperatures in the upper 40s. Rain tonight, temperatures stay in the 40s, and tomorrow, more rain. Highs around 50 degrees. It is 43 degrees right now in Boston. Thank you for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel. And I'm Asma Khalid. A group of senior officials in the Biden administration are traveling to Mexico today to talk immigration enforcement. There's been an unprecedented surge in migrants at the border. Federal agents encountered roughly 2.5 million migrants there this year. NPR immigration correspondent Jasmine Garst joins us now to discuss. So you are traveling on this trip today. What do you expect will be discussed in the meetings? So Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorgas, and White House Homeland Security Advisor Elizabeth Sherwood Randall are scheduled to meet with Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador. And they'll be arriving around the same time as a caravan of thousands of migrants treks through Mexico heading towards the U.S. border. Now, President Biden already spoke to President López Obrador last week about curbing immigration. And the Mexican president said they are in talks for Mexico to secure its own southern border with Guatemala, as well as 
to make it more difficult for migrants to move up Mexico. My understanding is that today's trip will be to flesh out the details of that enforcement. Mm -hmm. And there is a sense of urgency. Right now, there are ongoing negotiations in Congress involving immigration enforcement. Right. Jasmine, those talks in Congress have been going on for some time, but they're certainly ramping up this question of border security. Tell us a little bit more about that, about what's at stake. Well, of course, we're heading into an election year and a centerpiece of Republican presidential campaigns has been Biden's immigration policies, which they are calling disastrous. Add to that, recently President Biden requested wartime aid for Ukraine and Israel. In response, House Republicans demanded that there be a drastic change in immigration policy to mm -hmm. make applying for and receiving asylum at the border far more difficult, as well as expanded deportations. So what has the response been from Mexico to all of these suggestions? So this month, the Mexican government halted a program to repatriate and transfer migrants inside Mexico due to lack of funds. President López Obrador has said he's willing to work with the U.S. The Mexican president has also made it clear he wants the Biden administration to ease sanctions on the governments of Cuba and Venezuela. A significant percentage of migrants are from Venezuela. And he wants more aid to Latin America. Jasmine, I want to zoom out away from the politics of this specific moment. You have spent a lot of time at the U.S.-Mexico border covering migrants, covering humanitarian concerns. What are you hearing ahead of these potential policy changes? I have. And what is unfolding at the border is a humanitarian crisis like I haven't seen in my years of reporting. Mm. What I've heard is a lot of fear from advocates that it could be a return to Trump-era policies where there was no access to asylum in the U.S., and that delegating immigration enforcement to Mexico has led to serious human rights abuses. Ahead of this meeting, the U.S. Department of State has said it will reaffirm the U.S.'s commitment for the protection of asylum seekers and, quote, underscore the urgent need for lawful pathways. NPR's Jasmine Garst, thanks for taking the time to talk to us ahead of your busy day of reporting and travel. Thank you. A bipartisan group of lawmakers wants to end legacy preferences in college admissions. At highly selective colleges, students who have a direct family tie to the school can be as much as three times more likely to be admitted than equally qualified students who don't. The college admissions process is under new scrutiny after the Supreme Court ended race-based affirmative action in June. Here's NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel. Joe Massawa is a junior at Georgetown School of Foreign Service here in Washington, D.C., and to hear him tell it, he's living the dream. My grandparents lived here in D.C. I've been on campus. I have photos of me from when I was, was younger there. Um, so I always had Georgetown like in my mind as being, you know, the one school that I really, really wanted to get into. Growing up, he bonded with his dad, who he says is also a Georgetown graduate, over university basketball games. And Massawa says he worked his tail off to make sure he had the best odds possible to secure his spot. He even hopes his future kids will one day choose to attend Georgetown, too. But he told me he hopes the legacy admissions preference that may have helped him get in is eventually reformed. On the application, there's a little box that you can check that shows you, you know, whether or not you had a, a relative who was legacy. So I checked that box um, and I submitted my application and I heard back and I got in. You don't think much about it, but now that there's been, you know, this whole movement on campus 
it made me rethink my college application process and wonder that for all the work that I did to get into Georgetown, was it just the tiny little box that I checked? He signed a petition this fall, along with hundreds of other students, staff, and alumni, calling on Georgetown to end preferential treatment of legacy applicants. And the petitioners have some powerful allies in that fight. A bipartisan pair of U.S. senators who have proposed legislation that would amend the Higher Education Act of 1965 to link a school's accreditation to ending the practice. Republican Todd Young of Indiana joined with Democrat Tim Kaine of Virginia to introduce the Merit Act. Here's Kaine. I think families of kids don't like the notion that they start off already behind because maybe they didn't go to the school or somebody else has more money than them. The lawmakers say legacy preference runs counter to the idea of the American dream. Richard Reeves, a scholar who studied this during his time with the nonpartisan Brookings Institution, agrees. The American ideal that I hope my kids would benefit from when I moved here, it's anti-hereditary at its core. The idea of taking your place, making your place, making your way in the world. Reeves said that while most Americans don't have a four-year degree, and far fewer attend the kind of highly selective institutions where legacy preference can offer the biggest boost, these highly selective institutions can still really shape how the country operates, given the number of people they send into government, media, and the executive ranks. Is this idea of meritocracy should be driving college admissions, or is the role of these institutions to help kind of pass the baton on from one generation to the next? Georgetown University didn't respond to multiple requests for comment from NPR, but alongside hundreds of other institutions, the school is facing pressure from a growing chorus of lawmakers, of all stripes, who say it's time for reform. Folks like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the progressive New Yorker, and Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, a social conservative who spoke out against the practice during his presidential run. Masawa, the Georgetown legacy student, told me that this issue can be really hard to talk about for folks but that he's grateful that people are talking about it. The admissions process is flawed and it's skewed, and I hope for the process to be reformed, and I think that this is one step that it could be reformed to be fairer for all college applicants. And while it's not likely this reform bill will make it through a mostly stalled Congress to Biden's desk for a signature, it's clear that the issue has momentum. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, Washington. The past few weeks, from Syria and Lebanon to the Red Sea and even into Iraq, there have been confrontations between the United States or Israeli troops and militias backed by Iran. They have intensified because of Israel's war against Hamas as the death toll there in Gaza balloons over 20,000 people. And despite U.S. pressure to ratchet it down, Israeli officials say the war is likely to last, quote, many months. And this week, things escalated when U.S. troops were injured in Iraq and the U.S. carried out airstrikes on the militia that claimed responsibility. Joining us now from Istanbul to discuss all of this is NPR's Peter Kenyon. Good morning, Peter. Morning. Peter, let's step back for a moment and describe the bigger picture here. Iran has backed militias all around the Middle East. Why does it do that? Well, this has been one of Iran's preferred ways of projecting its influence in the region. I mean, you don't see Iranian forces being shipped out in large numbers to conflict areas in the Mideast. But what you do see are Iranian-funded militia groups. In action, Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Houthis in Yemen, various militias in Iraq, and to some extent Hamas. Now, Hamas is, of course, in a war with Israel after Hamas members killed some 1,200 people in southern Israel on October 7th. Iranian officials like to talk about the axis of resistance. They mean groups that are fighting to reduce or, if possible, eliminate the American military presence in the region. And it's an arrangement that lends Tehran influence without it getting directly involved in the fighting. So there have been a lot 
of incidents lately. Uh, there seems like there's almost daily shelling or airstrikes between Israel and Hezbollah on the Lebanon border. So what is it that specifically occurred in the last few days that has folks concerned about escalation? Well, in addition to the attacks from Hezbollah in the north, Israel just identified three soldiers killed in Gaza, and Palestinian officials said six people were killed in a drone strike in the West Bank. Beyond that, this recent drone attack on a U.S. base in Erbil in northern Iraq killed at least one American service person, critically wounded another, and that was followed by a U.S. response in Syria that killed a senior Iranian commander. Headlines in Iranian media are still filled with official comments vowing revenge for that. Uh, there's another factor here. That's the threat to shipping in the Red Sea and beyond. Rockets and missiles have been launched at tankers Iran says are linked to Israel. It led some firms to send their vessels all the way around Africa rather than the more direct Red Sea route. Yeah, and it led the U.S. to send warships to the region to quell the rocket fire and deter others from getting involved. Uh, That has some companies possibly considering returning to the Red Sea. All right. So are there mechanisms or negotiations of some sort to keep this all from spiraling out of control? There are certainly plenty of calls for talks. Uh, So far, Israel's Benjamin Netanyahu has shown no interest in having negotiations right now. Uh, He's been warning that the Israeli military could do to Beirut and Lebanon what it's doing in the Gaza Strip if Hezbollah decides to increase cross-border attacks into Israel. Probably the main deterrence to escalation now is the worry that things could get out of control. Uh, The U.S. already has a couple thousand troops in Syria, Mm -hmm. some 900 in Iraq, doesn't need to see things heating up. Even Iran, which talks a lot about getting other countries involved in the conflict, hasn't forgotten it's surrounded by Gulf Arab states with ties to the U.S. So all sides have something to lose. No one's entirely in control of events. Each attack brings pressure for a response, and the risk of escalation is very real. Diplomats are looking for some means of preventing that. NPR's Peter Kenyon in Istanbul, thanks so much for your reporting. Thank you. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for being with WBUR this morning. Coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, how the economy is affecting presidential politics. It's 20 minutes past eight. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. I'm Robin Young. While Michigan made ballot drop boxes mandatory in 2023, North Carolina banned them. We'll look at changes in voting laws. For some Americans, voting is going to be more accessible in 2024 than it has ever been before. While other Americans are going to experience a lot of new barriers to the ballot box. Next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Cloudy skies today, highs up around 50 degrees. Looks like rain tonight with temperatures in the 40s and more rain tomorrow. Highs again near 50 degrees. It's 43 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. 
From the Sci Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at scisimsfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Leila Faldil. The end of the year always brings lots of top 10 lists of movies and books and TV shows. But why write about 10 things when you could write about 50? That's the philosophy behind 50 Wonderful Things, an annual list of delights from NPR's pop culture correspondent, Linda Holmes. Hi, Linda. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. So I think uh, the obvious question is why 50 things? Right. Uh, I started publishing these lists in 2010, which was very early in my time at NPR. My reasoning was that trying to identify the best things was never as satisfying to me as just choosing lots of great things. I wanted to recognize lots of the good work I get to see rather than trying to jam it all into a competition format. So, you know, very often a movie might not be one of the 10 best movies of the year, but maybe it has a moment or a costume choice or a music choice that's absolutely great. And this lets me recognize those things. Okay, so tell me something that made the list this year. So one thing is the really beautiful work that the actress Greta Lee did in the movie Past Lives, uh, which is one of my favorite movies of the year. And the fact that she's also the best thing about Apple's TV series, The Morning Show, which is it's an inconsistent show, but she's so good on it. And Mm -hmm. she plays a completely different kind of character. I just think she's one of the best actresses working. I love to watch her in anything. And there are some things on this list that are just things you admire for having been made at all, right? That's right. Uh, I had to give a shout out to the movie Cocaine Bear, which is just uh, about a bear who eats a lot of cocaine. The fact that they didn't try to dress it up, they just made a gory horror movie called Cocaine Bear is sort of (laughs) fabulous to me, even though, I mean, I'm not going to say the movie is fabulous, but it's a very funny idea to me. Was there a theme that emerged in this year's crop of wonderful things on your list? Well, one of the things that I noticed was that, particularly in the in the case of film, both big movies and small movies kind of showed up big for me. Um, I mentioned Past Lives, which is a very intimate story about this woman who reconnects with her childhood sweetheart long after she's moved from South Korea to Canada and then to New York. Um, but also, there were big movies that I thought were very impressive. Barb, this was the Barbie and Oppenheimer year, mm-hmm. obviously. Those are both huge movies, but they're also really lovingly made in different ways. Uh, I also think it's probably not a coincidence that in this year that has a lot of unsettling news that's in the news, I was drawn to some creepy and scary things. Mm-hmm. There's a movie called No One Will Save You, which is a kind of home invasion horror story that's just a flat-out bone chiller. Mm. And the novel The Guest by Emma Klein brings a a very different kind of unnerving tension to this story about a woman who's stranded in the Hamptons after her rich boyfriend dumps her. And I think sometimes when the world is deeply concerning, pop culture that gives you the creeps can sort of hit the spot. Mm. You're on a podcast. I'm assuming you didn't put your own podcast on the list. Were there no. podcasts that made that list? 
There were. Uh, one of them is my favorite podcast that I started listening to this year. It's It started in 2022. It's called If Books Could Kill. And it is uh, these two guys, Michael Hobbs and Peter Shamsheri. And they talk about airport nonfiction, I would call it. Uh, a lot of self-help books and, um, you know, some history and politics. And they take these really deep dives into these books to investigate, you know, they fact check them, they contextualize them. And uh, I have a little clip that I want to play of their discussion of John Gray's uh, classic, quote unquote, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. And they're talking about how John Gray sometimes seems in this book like he's just talking about his own marriage. He gives like weirdly specific advice about this. He says that when you're telling a story to your husband, you should like skip to the end first because like men get bored if they don't know where the story's going and you're like building suspense. That also just seems like something you want to tell your wife, yeah. <laughs> but like you're giving us advice. I think that is so funny. And what I love about this show is it just makes you feel like you are still grounded. It is the stuff swirling around you that makes no sense. And I, I love that about it. So the holidays, everybody's doing a lot of cooking, a lot of eating. Does the list include anything for the foodies? It does. Uh, I talked about a couple of my favorite food hosts that I like to watch online. Uh, one of them is Eric Kim, who wrote a, a cookbook called Korean American, but also has uh, is a presence on the New York Times cooking uh, channel on YouTube. And he's just delightful. His presence is so dryly funny. I love everything he does. If you just go look up Eric Kim, you can find so much great stuff from him. This is him talking about making matcha latte cookies. So I love this cookie because it took a crap ton of work, but also I think I really achieved what I was looking for, which was it tastes like a matcha latte and people love matcha lattes. He's just so much fun to watch. Uh, Eric Kim, just anything you can find from him is great. This list can expose your readers to a lot of new things, obviously. And it's probably nice for anybody who sees their work to appear on it. But what does making this list do for you as a critic? Well, I think of this as the time of the year when I get to just be purely grateful, really. It is, it's very easy to get cynical about the way that huge companies treat a lot of the creative work that they produce and finance. But somehow, even with all of those problems, there is still so much that people do uh, every single year that is good or brave or funny or really fresh and innovative. So to me, it's it's very restorative at the end of the year to end on kind of that note of appreciation and abundance. I love that. Like, thank you for making the, these things this year and for sharing them with us. NPR's pop culture correspondent, Linda Holmes, with her list of 50 wonderful things. Thank you so much, Linda. Thank you. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, and in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a local energy company is trying to help Boston and Cambridge reduce carbon emissions by providing steam heat without using fossil fuels. 
WBUR City Space is out with its lineup for the first few months of the new year. It includes conversations with Chef Jack Zhang, former NPR host Michelle Norris, and the Moth Story Slam. Check out the calendar and get your tickets by visiting WBUR.org slash events. It's 8.30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and other senior White House officials are traveling to Mexico today. They're expected to focus on migration and border security and talks with Mexico's president. As NPR's Jasmine Garst reports, U.S. agents have encountered about 2.5 million migrants at the southern border this year. Secretary of State Blinken, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorgas, and White House Homeland Security Advisor Elizabeth Sherwood Randall are scheduled to meet with Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador. On the agenda, discussing how Mexico can secure its own southern border with Guatemala, as well as make it more difficult for migrants to move up through Mexico and to the U.S. President López Obrador has said he's willing to work with the U.S., but has also stated he wants wants the Biden administration to ease sanctions on the governments of Cuba and Venezuela. He argues that those sanctions are contributing to the surge in immigration and that deterrence alone will not be effective. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. Republicans in Congress have said they won't approve President Biden's request for additional USA to Ukraine and Israel without changes to border and immigration policies. Negotiations are continuing in the Senate. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. A state firefighters union is asking the Boston City Council to reconsider its objection to a federal grant. Counselors have delayed taking the $13 million counterterrorism grant because of concerns about how it would be spent. It's earmarked only for preventing or responding to terrorist threats. The Professional Firefighters of Massachusetts calls the money a critical issue for public safety. Although doctors need to know how to ask the right questions to correctly diagnose patients, medical students don't get much practice. As Paul Kuno Booth reports, students at Dartmouth Medical School are using an AI chatbot to hone their interviewing skills. Dr. Thomas Thiessen says it can cost a lot for schools to hire medical actors to play patients in mock appointments. So Thiessen used ChatGPT to develop the AI Patient Actor app. Students can talk to an AI patient about their symptoms, order simulated tests, enter a diagnosis, and get instant feedback. Thiessen says it's one thing to diagnose when you start with all the facts. Eliciting that information from patients takes a higher level of skill. The difference is like, multiple choice tests versus short answers writing, right? It's a different cognitive uh, demand. He says the goal is not to replace humans, but to give students more opportunities to practice, especially at medical schools with fewer resources to hire actors. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Paul Kuno Booth. Montserrat College of Art in Beverly plans to use a $2 million federal grant to help its low-income students. College officials say the grant is the largest ever received by the school. They say the money will go toward creating new student job opportunities and bolstering existing mentorship programs. The Boston Globe reports that Montserrat will give qualifying students a $1,500 credit to put toward internship or study abroad programs. The time is 8.33. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. 
beloved characters, and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Bruins will try to end their four-game losing streak tonight when they visit the Buffalo Sabres. Despite that streak, Boston remains the top team in the Atlantic Division, four points ahead of Toronto and Florida. Cloudy skies expected today with highs in the upper 40s. Looks like rain tonight with lows staying in the 40s and more rain tomorrow. Highs around 50 degrees. 43 degrees right now in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Leila Faldil. It's the top issue for Americans, one that often decides presidential elections the economy. It's shown some strong signs as of late, receding inflation, low unemployment, better than expected job growth, and people are even spending record amounts of money this holiday season. But President Biden does not seem to be benefiting politically. So what is going on here? And our senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro, is joining us now to tell us. Hi, Domenico. Hey there. Good to be with you. Okay, so let's talk about the politics of all this. What argument is the White House making about how President Biden has contributed to the state of the economy? Yeah, I mean, they say that the fundamentals are strong. Inflation's come down, unemployment continues to be low, and that job growth is pretty strong. But that really isn't filtering down to how Americans feel about the economy. Polls have found that just one in five people rate the economy as at least good, and they say that they don't like how Biden is handling it. Okay, so if there are positive signs for the economy, why do people feel this way? I mean, there are a lot of cross currents here. You know, the bottom line is I just don't think people look at this in a macroeconomics kind of way. I think it's okay. pretty simple. When people see big signs with gas prices higher than they'd like, and when they see that their bill at the checkout counter in the grocery store is $20, $30 higher than they'd paid, you know, say a year or two ago, then that stings and it sits with them. You know, even though inflation has receded, that really doesn't mean that the price of your morning coffee and eggs are going back to where they were, just that they're not going up as much as they had been. You know, plus the Federal Reserve has hiked interest rates several times over the last two years in an effort to bring down inflation. That's made taking out loans more expensive. So the irony here is that the very tool that's being used to curb inflation is also making buying a house more difficult and people are blaming Biden. So is there something more going on here than just economics? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of politics at play here, too. You know, whether people think the economy is good or bad isn't just dependent on prices or the unemployment rate. This is also about who you ask and which party is in the White House when you ask. What we found is that when a new administration comes in, there's been a sharp reversal in perceptions of the economy by party. And it's especially true of Republicans. You know, for example, the Pew Research Center found that at the tail end of the Obama presidency, with unemployment just below 5%, only 18% of 
of Republicans rated the economy as good or excellent. But after Trump took office, Republicans jumped to 81 percent. With Biden in office, Republicans' views of the economy nosedived again to 10 percent. Now, sure, inflation went up, obviously, but that kind of whiplash just can't be explained by economics alone, especially considering that inflation was flat between the end of the Obama White House and to Trump's time in office. Okay, well, going forward here, 2024 is an election year. So if voters aren't buying what Biden is selling on the economy, how difficult does that make his reelection chances? It's a big problem, especially when only 28 percent of Democrats in the Pew polling are saying that they think that the economy is good right now. You know, Biden has to hope that the economic good news continues, that inflation continues to come down and that the Fed gets more confident in the fundamentals of the economy, moves to cut rates and makes it easier for people to do things like buying a house or car. But this is not an easy political problem for Biden to solve at all. NPR's Domenico Montanaro, thank you so much. You're welcome. In 2023, U.S. roadways got a little bit safer than they were last year, but that's not saying much. Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports bad habits from the pandemic and vehicle designs are driving up traffic fatalities, especially for pedestrians. Nolan Davidson, a nine-year-old kid, was with his dad driving to a basketball game in suburban Kansas City when a guy in a speeding pickup smashed into the side of their car where Nolan was sitting. A few days later, Aaron Davidson was in church, eulogizing his son. Welcome, everyone. He was my definition of love. <laughs> a part of me is missing. A part of our family is missing. We will cherish our memories of Nolan forever. This kind of sudden death and grief is coming a lot faster now than it did just a few years back. People being killed on our roadways, it's friends, it's families, it's neighbors, it's coworkers. It happens every day. About 100 people are being killed every day uh, somewhere in the United States. Russ Martin with the Governor's Highway Safety Association says it's like a plane crash every single day of the year. Rex killed almost 42,800 Americans in 2022. Traffic fatalities had been generally trending down for decades until the pandemic when they shot up to a 16-year high. Kansas City Police Sergeant Jonathan Rivers says risky behavior took hold. The main causes that we're seeing is speed, excessive speeds, impairment, and no seatbelts. Speeders tend to be going faster than before. Drinkers are drunker. There's more marijuana and drug use. Of course, people are looking at their phones. But while distracted, lawless driving is up, law enforcement is down. In Kansas City, the police department's traffic enforcement division has shrunk to less than half the size it was just four years ago. When people feel that they can drive any way they want to, since they don't see officers on the highway as much as they used to. The police staffing shortage is nationwide, and it can cut especially deep in divisions like traffic control that don't handle many emergency calls. There is some good news about traffic fatalities, though. At a national level, they're slightly down. Mark Chung with the National Safety Council says overall traffic fatality rates have been easing, dropping around 3 percent toward possibly around 40,000 deaths in 2023. Americans are driving more now, too, so it's a big improvement, but still a lot worse than it was before the pandemic. Chung says there's a huge gap. The delta between that and pre-pandemic 2019 levels is around 6,000 or maybe even 7,000 lives. So... Your chances of dying in a car are off slightly from the worst days of the pandemic. But walking across a street like Troost Avenue here in Kansas City 
is as dangerous as it's been in 40 years. In the past couple of years, we've been in the midst of a pedestrian safety crisis, pedestrians being struck and killed on our roadways. Russ Martin, the Governor's Highway Safety Association, says pedestrian fatalities spiked up almost 80% in a decade, leading to more than 7,500 deaths last year. Mark Chung says the evolution of car design is partly to blame. Cars are safer for occupants. They have not been for non-occupants. And in fact, over the last 20 years, have been more dangerous for non-occupants. Much more dangerous. Those newer, tall, imposing, blunt-faced pickups and SUVs are particularly deadly. So the factors driving up traffic fatalities are well known. Pushing them down again is a complex problem. But it can't happen fast enough for people like Sergeant Rivers. It's destroying our communities. We see young lives snuffed out. We have to have a stop. Traffic experts insist this is possible by improving road and vehicle designs, emergency response, policing, by somehow convincing 230 million American drivers to be careful. The National Safety Council has staked out a goal of running traffic fatalities all the way down to zero by 2050. But just making U.S. roadways as safe as they were a few years ago is the first big step. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. This is NPR News. This is WBUR. Coming up in about 10 minutes, it's the Marketplace Morning Report with a conversation about some of the objects that defined 2023. Cloudy skies in our forecast today with temperatures in the upper 40s. Looks like rain tonight. Temperatures stay in the 40s and more rain tomorrow. Highs near 50 degrees. It's 43 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash give meals. In business news, the real estate market was tough for Massachusetts home buyers in 2023. High interest rates and low housing inventory drove up prices. WBUR's The Ninja and Wameka reports that the median home price in greater Boston hit a record of more than $900,000 in July. There hasn't been enough supply to meet the demand from home buyers, and high interest rates have made it less attractive for owners to list properties. Allison Sosha of the Greater Boston Association of Realtors says there are some signs of change. These last couple of weeks, as the interest rates have started to come down, have jump-started some of that buyer activity and may also open up a little bit of legroom for next year for sellers who might feel more inclined to jump into the market. Sosha says Boston needs more homes for sale, or the market will remain tough for many people. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zininjor and Wameka. One of the best martinis in America apparently can be found in Cambridge. That's according to a new ranking from Esquire. It recently named La Royal's Pisco Martini on its best of 2023 list. The publication describes the $15 cocktail as earthy and spicy. It's 8.45. Support for NPR comes from the station and from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how people and communities can come together in polarizing times on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. 
From the Lowe Star Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. More than 200 large buildings in Boston and Cambridge use steam to generate heat, but making that steam uses fossil fuels. Now, a local energy company is taking steps toward making its steam production green. WBUR's Paula Mora reports that this could help those cities reach their climate goals. These steam pipes are all the interconnected steam pipes that then will go to get sent out into the city. That's Don Silvia with Vicinity Energy. He's standing underneath a massive network of pipes in a power plant in Kendall Square. One goes to Cambridge and then there's two into Boston. Silvia says the steam travels through 30 miles of pipes to heat more than 200 buildings. For nearly a century, this power plant has been producing steam as a byproduct of generating electricity. Currently, the plant runs on natural gas. Both Cambridge and Boston require building owners to gradually reduce their emissions to net zero by 2050. To help the cities meet that goal, Vicinity Energy wants to move away from using fossil fuels. What's in front of you, which looks kind of innocuous, right, is our electric boiler. That electric boiler is the key to generating cleaner steam. That's because, in the future, the state's electrical grid will be increasingly powered by renewable energy. Well, the boiler will be zero emissions, right, because we're going to take in renewable power, right, wind power, solar power. Because steam heat pipes are already in place, it makes sense to find a cleaner way to use them. And part of the reason why we can do what we're doing is because we're not starting from scratch, right? We're reusing, so a lot of this is all about reuse, reinvent, reinvigorate existing infrastructure that we have. About half of large buildings' emissions come from their heating systems. Greening the steam production could cut roughly 20% of the emissions from Boston's largest buildings. Michael Gewelber is an associate professor of mechanical engineering at Boston University. He says cleaner steam would have a big impact. By getting the steam generation facilities to adopt these sort of solutions, we're significantly reducing Boston and Cambridge's emissions. But there's a caveat, the cost. He says that transitioning to the electric boiler steam will be expensive for building owners. Electricity costs three to five times more than natural gas. And it's not only that. The Massachusetts electrical grid is still mostly powered by fossil fuels. So the electricity that powers the boiler is still generating emissions. For clients that want to buy net-zero steam, Vicinity Energy will purchase local renewable energy credits. But that will cost more. Each building owner really needs to understand their building and how they're most cost-effectively going to meet the declining emission limits. That's why some building owners are looking into multiple approaches to lower their carbon footprint. 
One vicinity client that is looking into options to reduce emissions is the Mass General Hospital campus in Boston. Steam accounts for 12% of the campus emissions. Jonathan Slutsman is Mass General's medical director for environmental sustainability. Steam is not the only option available to us. Heating can be done with heat pumps very effectively. MGH has not decided if they will buy the electric steam. So far, one building developer has signed up to buy steam generated by the electric boiler. Back at the power plant, Sylvia says other steam operators are starting to show interest in electric boilers. Recently, a representative from a vicinity plant in Philadelphia toured the Cambridge facility. Everyone is coming and looking at what we're doing and figuring out how we're going to do it. With more cities passing legislation to lower carbon emissions, using electric boilers to serve steam heat systems could be part of the solution. For 9.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. It's 10 minutes before 9. Looking for the perfect gift for WBUR this year? Well, of course you are. How about your old car? It's Ray from Car Talk. You know, when you donate your old car or truck to WBUR, they'll turn it into the news coverage we'll all need next year. It's quick and easy, and you might even get a tax deduction. Start your car donation now at WBUR.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. A Palestinian telecom company says it's working to restore phone and Internet service across Gaza, which has been cut off for a fourth time since the war began. Apple says it plans to appeal a U.S. ban on the sale of its new Apple Watch. And the online retailer Zulily says it's shutting down for good just seven months after it went under new ownership. Stay up to date on the news here all day on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event, now through January 2nd. Clouds today, highs in the 40s, rain tonight with temperatures staying in the 40s, 43 degrees in Boston. When it comes to productivity, how much you get done in a given amount of time, it's all about what you measure. Let's apply this to Congress. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. I'm David Brancaccio. If wheel spinning and posturing were the metric, analysts might say productivity in Congress was high this year, but in terms of getting laws on the books to make things better, productivity was low. Our Nancy Marshall-Genzer covers Washington and has been looking through the record. Hi, Nancy. Hey, David. 26 bills were passed by both houses of Congress and signed into law by the president this year. That, according to the data analytics firm Quorum, not a lot. Not a lot because of the huge partisan and philosophical divide on Capitol Hill. Democrats believe the government should be doing things, but some Republicans say the less government, the better. Uh, Here's how Molly Reynolds sees it. She's a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. 
even as the House was voting a lot this year, they were not always voting on things that were in pursuit of actual legislative accomplishments. A lot of time using the floor to say things as opposed to using the floor to do things. And Reynolds says the last time we had a divided Congress like this was in 2019. And that year, she says 105 bills were signed into law compared to, again, only 26 this year. So if lawmakers received performance-based pay, if their salary was based on how productive they were, how much would they receive? Uh, They certainly wouldn't get a bonus, David. Congress still hasn't approved more aid for Ukraine, Israel, and the border, and it faces looming government shutdown deadlines next year. Thanks, Nancy. There's news just now. The New York Times company is suing Microsoft and OpenAI, contending the tech companies can't just take their content and feed them into their artificial intelligence algorithms without a license. It's a case with sweeping implications for AI and content producers. AI companies say they can take stuff under a legal argument called fair use. Markets NASDAQ futures are now up a tenth of a percent. S&P futures up just under, well, they're just almost, let's take a look here, are down just slightly. That's what I wanted to say. One of the world's biggest shipping companies is saying today it's still too dangerous to send its cargo through the Red Sea. This from Hapag Lloyd, based in Hamburg, Germany. There have been drone and missile attacks by Iran-supported rebels in Yemen. The BBC's Elektra Naismith has more. Hapag Lloyd suspended shipping through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal after an attack on one of its container ships. The crew was unharmed and the vessel continued its journey. But the company said the situation was unsafe and the risks unacceptable. An international military coalition led by the US is being deployed in the critical waterway to safeguard international trade. Maersk, another shipping giant, has said it's preparing to resume operations, although there doesn't appear to be a specific timetable. Houthi attacks are continuing. At least two were reported on Tuesday. Global freight companies are waiting eagerly to see security conditions improve. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Bitwarden. The Bitwarden Password Manager stores unlimited logins, secure notes, credit cards, and more with access on any device. More at Bitwarden.com. Top books of 2023, top words, songs. What about objects that define the year drawing to a close? Rob Walker is a journalist who puts together a list for the publication Fast Company as part of a column he writes called Branded. Rob, welcome. Great to be talking to you again. Happy holidays. Let's just get a taste of what's on the list here. I mean, it's going to be some Taylor Swift something, right? <laughs> Good bet. Nice to meet you. Where you been? I could show you incredible things. Taylor Swift is such a unique figure. Obviously, it was a big Swifty year. She was the person of the year. So someone like that, they don't just have merch. They have a whole ecosystem of trading, making, and showing off, in this case, friendship bracelets. And Taylor has also been in the news for her love life. And apparently Travis Kelsey, at the beginning of his courtship of Taylor Swift, made a friendship bracelet with his phone number on it and tried to get it to her. Perhaps as ubiquitous in the culture, although not the same level of singing talent, Elon Musk. There's a connection here. What's an Elon Musk object? 
as you remember, there used to be a company called Twitter, <laughs> which he bought. Then he got a new, an idea for a new name, which was X. Had a 30-foot-high letter X installed on the roof of the uh, former Twitter headquarters in San Francisco. Ex-owner Elon Musk has been tweeting saying the building's landlord keeps calling the police about our sign modifications. Made their headquarters look like the headquarters of some sort of supervillain. But that was uh, removed after complaints, and the city is apparently going to level some fines. I don't know where that stands. Yeah, and it's interesting, right, because Twitter is ones and zeros. It's virtual. It's on screen. So what's the object? And he figured it out. But that does lead me to another question, which is our world is so virtual. I mean, is it getting harder to find 3D objects in physical space that are emblematic? I just think they're becoming more intertwined. And the more digital we get, the more we crave these sort of physical manifestations of the digital. And the digital world amplifies physical things. Well, she got here for Objects 2023. Well, Barbie, enough said. Maybe picket signs from the big strikes of the year, the UAW, but also, of course, actor-writer. Yeah, the clever picket signs really got a lot of attention in a good way for their cause. And there was one that was, Jet GPT doesn't have childhood trauma, meaning it will never replace the great writers. But these are people standing outside of buildings with signs made with markers that echoed across the culture, thanks again to social media. Are you going to bring any of these objects into your own personal collection on your list of objects of the year is the Donald Trump mugshot t-shirt embraced by lovers of Donald Trump and detractors, all of them. In an interview with Newsmax, the former president called his booking a terrible experience, but it hasn't kept him from selling mugshot merchandise on his campaign website. This sort of merchification of politics has just become one of the most interesting recent trends where anything that one side is criticizing the other for the other side turns into merch and the mugshot stuff raised seven or eight million dollars in a matter of days after trump was booked at uh, fulton county jail with his list of defining objects from 2023 journalist rob walker he publishes his list in fast company you can also subscribe to his newsletter on substack it's called the art of noticing rob walker thank you so much thank you and I'm David Brancaccio, and you're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. We're from APM, American Public Media. Cloudy skies in our forecast today with temperatures in the 40s. Looks like we'll see rain tonight with temperatures staying in the 40s. And tomorrow, more rain, highs up around 50 degrees, 43 degrees right now in Boston at just about 9 o'clock. Stay with us. The BBC is next. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.